Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. Today, we'll be taking a look at Jorge Luis Borges' 1944 story, The Three Versions of Judas. We are reading this from the collected fictions from Penguin Classics, which was translated by Andrew Hurley. This is the next installment in our ongoing series on Borges. This, of course, is a series that was chosen by our Patreon supporters in a a series of votes last year. And I want to say just a huge thanks to all of you who participated in that. This has been real exciting for us having these two series. And of course, we also are getting ready to pick our themes for next year, which has been a super amount of fun for us over on Patreon. But before we get into today's episode, we want to let you know about our sponsor for this episode. This is writer John R. Fultz. Fultz's new collection, Darker Than Weird, is out now, and it is a really awesome collection. I think that y'all will really, really enjoy it. Of course, we've been talking about this collection for a few episodes now. We've been highlighting some of the stories that have really appealed to us. Brandon, what's another story that you want to let people know about from this collection? Well, I've just begun to dive into This Is How the World Ends. This story is a uh, Cthulhu apocalypse, I guess. It's got this above ground versus underground type of feel to it. People forced underground because of monsters on the loose. Uh, It's a romance. It's a birth horror story. Like all of Fultz's stories I've read so far, so many concepts kind of at play, you know, tropey concepts. And I mean that in a really positive way because I love uh, a good trope handled well and uh, love a good, a weird apocalypse. And this story is right up my alley. All right. I also had picked out a story that's actually quite similar, I guess, in, in some ways. This is a story called The Embrace of Elder Things. This was actually the very first story that I read in this collection. And I did that because it's got Elder Things in the title. You and I spent more than a year talking about Elder Things when we, you know, covered <laughs> at the Mountains of Madness, and I have to say here that Fultz does not disappoint. I don't want to say anything really specific about this story because I I don't want to give anything away, but this is actually a sequel of sorts to At the Mountains of Madness, but it's set on the moon, and uh, I highly recommend it. So we hope that you will check out Darker Than Weird by John R. Fultz. We've put some links in the show notes to make that uh, just as easy as possible for you. But let's get into it, Brandon. Let's turn our attention here to three versions of Judas. With this story, we are in for some serious business academic fantasy. In fact, Borges describes this story as a Christological fantasy, and uh, it is everything that I could have hoped for from a genre label like that. I'm really excited to talk about this story. So Brandon, take us through three versions of Judas. Well, we are in the 20th century in the university town of Lund, and we learn that Niels Runeberg has written some books that we are about to learn about. Now, I I bring up this time and place here, as Borges does, to contrast the reception of Runeberg's work in the 20th century with the way that such work might have been received in the past perhaps in the second century in Asia Minor or in Alexandria. And uh, this is because Runeberg's intellectual labor is ultimately heretical towards basic Christian dogma and theology. The books that Runeberg has written, uh, the books whose arguments or really proofs will be considered and reviewed in this Borges text, the three versions of Judas, uh, these books are entitled 
Christus ac Judas and den Hemlige Fralsaren. And translated, these titles are translated to English, I should say. These titles are Christ and Judas, and then something like the secret savior. Yeah, let, let's let's clarify a little bit here. Those titles are in Swedish. Lund is in Sweden. I don't know ultimately if that will matter, but yeah, we're definitely not pronouncing the Swedish very yes, well. And of course, yeah. listeners can't <laughs> see the words you know that we're saying. So I thought we should clarify that as best as we could. Also, we should really emphasize up front, Brandon, that this is all made up. Runeberg didn't exist. Borges is making up these books. Uh, he's also mostly making up these arguments, but this is all speculative. It is all fantastical, even if it's being presented really just as if this is a legitimate academic review article. That's right. And these these arguments, we're using that phrase here, but uh, the reviewer of this this piece, of these works, is only looking at the conclusions, which, you know, later on he'll say, it's possible for Runeberg, the conclusions came first. So, you know, whatever. That's actually a classic form of logical <laughs> uh, form, formulations anyway. What Boris is doing here is, you know, uh, assuming the voice of the author of this review. And so this reviewer wishes to emphasize that Niels is a deeply religious man. He is a member of the National Evangelical Union. And additionally, uh, Runeberg has sacrificed a lot personally to unlock what he believed were the central mysteries of Christian theology. Uh, Runeberg really put it all on the line to reach these theological conclusions that he reached and then as a final reminder in this preamble to the review, we, as I've pointed out, are not are only about to get Runeberg's conclusions, not the studious work and the intellectual labor that he put into them, not even to mention the texts wherein he defends these uh, positions that we are yet to reveal. Yeah, that's a shame, really. I, I would have loved to have seen all of that actual work, but of course, if we were going to get that, it would have meant that Borges would actually have had to write these imaginary monographs rather than just this <laughs> review article. Uh, that's a pretty tall task. I don't know that there has ever been a market for that either. So, you know, not really uh, something we were ever going to get. I do want to read just a tiny bit of text here because this caveat that Borges gives us here also includes this line. But what man can content himself with seeking out proofs for a thing that not even he himself believes in? or whose teaching he cares not for. And Borges, I guess, was writing in a time when academic jobs were much less competitive than they are now, because at this point, dying on the hill of an argument or a reading or an interpretation that you don't actually believe in is uh, not that uncommon. This is actually a big part of uh, what it is to be an academic. I am mostly joking, actually, as I say that, I should be clear, because most of the scholars that I've known have been more than willing to admit to being wrong, or at least, you know, admit that someone else's interpretation of the evidence might have merit. But nonetheless, uh, but nonetheless, I think there is uh, still some kernel of, of truth here in my observation about <laughs> the different uh, assumptions that Borges is making about academia than, uh, than I would make. Yeah, Borges is one of the great satirists of academia, I think, out there, you know, up there with, well, he's probably at the top of that mountain. There's other great satires like Don DeLillo's White Noise and so on. It's a great satire of, of academia. But the way that Borges satirizes academic texts is is really second to none. Well, let's move on here and look at the three versions of Judas that were promised in the title of this story. 
The first version of Judas comes from the English writer Thomas de Quincey, who in 1857 asserted that it is not one thing, but all the things which legend attributes to Judas Iscariot that are false. Uh, so this is the flag, in a sense, that 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 Runeberg picked up and ran with in his in his first book, Christ and Judas. This, this quote, in fact, serves as the epigraph to Christ and Judas. And then the text of Christ and Judas goes on to claim that Judas's action in betraying Christ to the Sanhedrin and the Roman authorities was utterly superfluous. It actually wasn't needed. It didn't need to be done in order that Christ performed the passion to, to performs his sacrifice on the cross. So it really can't be then that Judas's betrayal of Christ was a random act. Rather, it must have been predetermined by God. And then Judas acting within the mystery of God's sovereignty, that God, you know, demonstrated his control of this entire plan. And then, in a sense, Judas sacrificed himself so that the greater sacrifice could take place. Judas was the one disciple then who saw who Christ was in terms of his divinity and recognized that someone would need to betray Christ and then took that on himself as a way to symbolically demonstrate the dark nature of humanity's sinfulness that ultimately required Christ's sacrifice. So Judas ultimately performed a selfless act to become the villain of Christianity and is there and then people are therefore able to be redeemed. Maybe Judas himself is is able to be redeemed as well. It's a lot. This is a dense story, I should say. And and some of these arguments that I'm repeating here might come out a little skewed. Yeah, and and Borges's syntax here is actually fairly difficult to parse. I don't I don't know if that's Borges or the the translator here, but in any case, it's a little bit difficult to parse and it's not entirely clear to me at what point what he's describing ceases to be De Quincey and actually becomes Runeberg. I think that's unfortunate here, but I will say that it's clearly De Quincey who claims that Judas betrayed Christ in order to force him to declare his divinity and therefore set in motion a vast uprising against the Roman Empire. And this is actually even a different argument than what Runeberg ends up making, which is really more about this symbolic importance of having a villain and, and having then you know Judas fulfill that role. I have to say, Brandon, I actually think that De Quincey's claim here is actually more interesting than Runeberg's as well. And De Quincey's a, a real person here. It is a great claim. I, I really, really actually liked this De Quincey uh, argument here that, you know, it's heretical, obviously, but the idea that that Judas's action went beyond the betrayal of Christ to say that... Um, that Judas acted somehow outside of God's plan would deny one of the core characteristics of God, which is his omnipotence or his providence or something along those lines. So if Judas's actions were predetermined, the cause must have been beyond merely condemning Judas to hell. And the idea that De Quincey has come up with here is that it was about forcing 
Christ out into the open in some way. Also, the Jewish belief that the Messiah was um, perhaps going to be some sort of uh, political leader for them to uh, rescue them from the Roman authorities. I mean, there's a lot going on here in, in terms of context, in terms of uh, theology and in, in, in the history of Christianity and Judaism. Um, but the, yeah, the basic idea that De Quincey's running with comes from a kind of paradoxical sense of, hey, why did Judas need to be betray Christ in order for Christ's sacrifice to be completed. Right. Yeah. The the Judas that De Quincey envisions here is the Judas who thinks that Jesus should be more like Paul Atreides. Yes. Yes. That's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> that's your Dune Bible crossover for the day, folks. Yeah. We're going to wrap it up just right now. <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, let's look at some of the arguments against De Quincey and Runeberg in particular's uh, his his claims here. There are arguments against these. They're brought up here. Some of them came from the New Testament scriptures themselves, namely the book of Luke, chapter 22, verse 3, in which Luke claims that Judas had opened himself up to Satan and thus truly became an instantiation of God's adversary, maybe an incarnation of God's adversary. Uh, and then that person, Satan, is not open to being redeemed. Christ will not be redeeming uh, the devil, the adversary of God. So as that is the case, so Judas is not able to be redeemed. And that seems to be pretty clear cut in uh, the sacred texts of Christianity. Uh, the arguments, though, against Runeberg's position led Runeberg to reflect upon his own arguments, led him to kind of uh, commit to a reappraisal of his position. Um but Runeberg seems to really want to cast Judas in a heroic light, or at least a self-sacrificial one. So Runeberg, in that mode, um, in his revision of his initial claim, asserted that Judas knew exactly what he was doing and performed his act of betrayal as a mode of total asceticism, as a total of uh, rejection of all pleasure and, and good, I suppose, in the world. His act then, though it condemned him to hell, was ultimately an act of humility and renunciation of all worldly good, something monks have been known to do in Christian history. And that's why then, Judas took the least amount of silver offered for a human life, uh, rather than asking for more, claiming that Jesus was worth more than the least, you know, that whoever was paying in the flesh markets of, of, of the time period and so on. But Judas then knew what was needed to redeem mankind and then renounced even heaven itself to bring that about. Yeah, I find this second argument of Runeberg's even less appealing and actually less supported than that first argument. But the the basic idea here seems to be that Judas willfully served as a dark mirror for Christ, which was necessary for some reason. I don't I don't know that Borges is exceptionally clear about that here. But but Rumberg does say something here that I thought was really interesting and also something that Christian thinkers really do have to grapple with, which is that Christ chose Judas. So either Christ made a mistake in choosing Judas, or he didn't make a mistake. And if he didn't make a mistake, then maybe we ought to let Judas off the hook for simply performing the role that he was assigned. It's a, it's a big question, and it's one of the central mysteries of Christianity that will cause you 
some amount of discomfort when you kind of uh, reach these logical points for a little while until you just have to either decide to accept the mysteries of the faith or not, really. I mean, this is one of the mysteries of, of Christianity, I think. Well, these approaches to Judas from Runeberg come from uh, Christ and Judas, and it's, you know, second edition text and third editions and so on, the revisions. But Runeberg's final version of Judas, the third version in, in this review, comes from his 1909 book, The Secret Savior. And in this book, Runeberg points out some of the qualities that the messianic figure of the Christ should possess uh, if you're looking at biblical prophecy in order to redeem the human race. First, the Christ's suffering should be more complete than that which Christ faced on the cross. On the cross. Again, these are the conclusions, not the arguments that uh, we're looking at here. Uh, further conclusions that Runeberg reached here is that it is there's some incompatibility in Christ being both fully human and fully divine. If we are heeding, you know, the prophecies of the Messiah found in Isaiah, um, but there's all like a lot of Isaiah prophecies that Runeberg is looking at too uh, to look at the qualities of the Christ figure, including one that says. There is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And so for Runeberg, this characterization of the Messiah's, I don't know, interior life or so, something like that, disqualifies Yeshua, the Christ that we know of. And Runeberg is basically saying that Isaiah's prophecies don't just apply to Jesus, but to all of human history as well. Uh, and so for God to truly condescend, to become a man of sorrows without beauty, who is willing to truly take on the pure suffering of humanity, it just is not the case that this could be Jesus of Nazareth. Instead, it is Judas who is the true Messiah based on the prophetic texts. And of course, it's the case that Runeberg's the thesis here is widely rejected. But rejection is almost too strong a word, as that would mean people paying attention to Runeberg's thesis. Rather, Runeberg's work here is widely ignored. And so Runeberg kind of starts to carry this mantle of rejection. He says his feelings about being rejected are like the way that prophets like Elijah and Moses must have felt. These men whose uh, could not bear to look at the countenance of God. And so this rejection of the premise of God who is rejected, of God who is rejected and thus even being rejected by God, is this a confirmation of these claims? He's kind of taking on this persecution complex, in other words, where the fact of being persecuted or ignored is itself a verification of the arguments themselves. You know, and, and one thing that is running through Runeberg's mind is that is my claim about Judas being Christ, or rather his devotion, or rather my devotion to this claim, the true blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Am I revealing something that God would rather keep revealed? Runeberg then wishes to join his Redeemer in the inferno. And uh, that's kind of where the soft sto story ends, the text here ends. But here's the final paragraph of the story. 
Runeberg died of an aneurysm on March 1st, 1912. Heresiologists will perhaps remember him. He added to the concept of the sun, which might have been thought long spent, the complexities of misery and evil. I know I made a hash out of this uh, text here. This is a very difficult text to uh, summarize in any way. The arguments aren't arguments, uh, so it's tough to lay out clearly, but hopefully I got the gist of it. Hopefully you'll read this story, but Glenn, I'm going to just toss the ball to you at this point. Yeah, I'm going to take us into the discussion here, and you're absolutely right that this was a very, very difficult piece. We're going to eventually talk about this story as a story. In fact, we're eventually going to talk about the story, but I actually want to kick us off here by just talking about the actual historical context for what Borges is up to here, really just in terms of thinking about, well, heterodoxy, but then also just outright heresy, which is really kind of the intellectual arc of Runeberg here. He starts out as someone engaging in a little light heterodoxy and then uh, ends up engaging in some pretty major heresy here at the the, the end. That's kind of his intellectual arc. But yeah, I thought it would be interesting and and fun for us uh, to just kind of walk through and talk about some of the other Christological heresies that have been important in the past, things that Borges is is referring to or alluding to in this story. We should say up front that neither of us has any expertise on this, though I do have expertise in late antiquity and, and also the Roman Empire as well. And I have read and even studied some of the texts that are important here, but it's not something I've written about. This is not uh, any of, and I haven't done original research on, but there are two, but there are two categories here that I think would be worth looking at. Uh, One of them is going to be Judas, right? Other ways that people have seen or viewed Judas in a heretical way in the past. Uh, But I want to start, Brandon, by looking at the question of whether Christ is human or divine or or how the mixture of human and divine plays out. Is it 50-50, 70-30, you know, 0-100? How does that actually work out? Because this is a big question that people uh, in antiquity, you know, Christian thinkers in antiquity had. There were big church councils to hammer out exactly these positions, at which, of course, the losing positions were declared heretical and so on. And all of this is super complicated, also has a really messy history. But the first one I think we should talk about just a little bit, Brandon, is uh, called docetism, or you might call it docetism. There's a C in there. Uh, This is actually invoked by Borges in the story. This is a not very well-known, very well-understood heresy. I think it's really only mentioned by Irenaeus in the, the late second century. But this is a position that Jesus was not at all human. He was completely, just completely divine, and therefore he could never actually have have suffered. Now, as I said, this is a pretty minor heresy, late second century. It it survives into the third. We do, I guess, know about it from, uh, besides Irenaeus, though he tells us the most about it. But yeah, just this idea that all of our ideas about the suffering of Christ are mistaken because, well, he couldn't have suffered because he was an entirely divine being. This, I think, for, you know, any Christian after about the year 300, it's going to feel real weird. But this was actually a serious business argument here that could be supported by the text. Any Anytime I read or learn about the this period of um, nailing down orthodoxy in the Christian church, I'm just always amazed at what kind of that the 
the rigor that these thinkers kind of engaged with in, you know, reading this, the scriptures or determining what the scriptures are, but also um, the violence which with, <laughs> with which, like, it was really easy to just cast people out or call them a heretic. Um, and this, this idea that the, the God of Christ, the divinity of Christ is always one that's so fascinating. So I'm kind of here listening along and just learning. Uh, I, I won't have many comments here, but I'm, I'm really intrigued by, by what you're bringing to the table. Yeah. Before I go through the list, and I've really only got two other heresies here on this part of the list anyway, maybe I should have already said that one of the things that I find really fascinating about a little bit about late antique Christianity, but especially about early Christianity, which is Christianity before uh, the emperor Constantine gets involved, is that early Christianity was really quite heterodox. There were a lot of different interpretations of these scriptures. There also was disagreement about which texts are actually scriptures and which are not. All of this, or maybe not all of it, but much of this gets hammered out at the Council of Nicaea during Constantine's reign. And so that really is the transition from early Christianity to late antique Christianity. But all these different varieties of Christianity in the early centuries of this religion are really, really fascinating. And just their existence, the conclusions they come to, really point out how complicated these texts are. You can read them over and over and over again. Your thousandth time reading uh, one particular gospel, you might suddenly realize you have a question about the meaning of a particular word that you've never thought of before, and then realize that your entire faith hinges on the answer to this question that you've never thought of before, and that no one seems to have answered. And so that's how these that's how these things grow out. And even a lot of Christian scripture itself actually grows out of that. It is frequently, and here I'm just thinking about the letters, right? The letters components of the New Testament— are the answers to these questions from people who are regarded as authorities on the message of Christ. And it's just a really, really fascinating textual history or history of theology, history of Christology here. Just uh, and, and Borges has really channeled that in, a, in an entertaining way. He really has, and he's he's kind of landed upon one of the, one of the core questions that you know if you're if you're deep into the Gospels, you might end up having you know as but in in relation to the the kind of heterodoxy, uh, there's a history of Christianity written by Dear Martin McCullough, uh, in which you know in the introduction he points out that there has never been Christianity; there has always been Christianities, and you know if you grow up in the church or you're you're still a part of the the Christian faith, it, it doesn't feel that way until you step outside your denomination or your local church or whatever. But when you, when you kind of really survey what's out there, it, it is true that there are just, there are really Christianities um, more than there is a single, single faith that people follow. Anyway, that's uh that's kind of in, in support of what you've been saying, I suppose. And McCulloch's a brilliant scholar. He worked on the, the Reformation. He has many books uh, on the Reformation, all of which are worth reading, but also this broad history of Christianity is well worth reading. And uh, yeah, well, we can put a link to that in the show notes because it's uh, it's an excellent, excellent place to start with this. I will take us a little bit further along here, Brandon, on our, our tour of some of these heresies here. And actually, at this point, we're going to get really into 
late antiquity. I want to talk a little bit about Arianism here. This was a major heresy that was subscribed to by very powerful people, Roman emperors, also post-Roman kings. Um, there's a whole bunch of other powerful people as well. And this is the belief that Jesus was he, he was divine, but he was not nearly as divine as God. And something that had been hammered out at the Council of Nicaea is that God and Jesus are are co-eternal, uh, that they've always both existed, and that they also are the same bit of divinity. But Arianism feels differently about that, that, be, that Jesus was created later than God and was therefore subordinate to God. And I bring this one up because it's really important in what I work on, which is the barbarian kingdoms that succeed the Western Roman Empire as it begins to disintegrate in the 5th century. Many of these uh, rulers, if not entirely the uh, barbarian elite, practiced Arianism. And this then is a really important part of how these states get started, and we can actually see pretty big evidence of uh, you know two different organized Christian churches here uh, in these kingdoms, uh, particularly that's true in uh, my favorite place, which was the, the Burgundian kingdom, though it's true in some other places as well. But this, of course, is heretical, at least uh, it was already and was already regarded as heretical really since the Council of Nicaea. It's regarded as heretical today as well. And writing about the heresy of these leaders of the rulers of these kingdoms was a huge part of what bishops were doing at this point. And so a huge chunk of what has survived for us from the early Middle Ages is actually arguments against Arianism. Sadly, we don't have really any of the texts that are pro-Arianism, even where we know that they actually existed. But this is a place where a Christological controversy actually had a really, really big impact on institutional development, social uh, relationships and social developments, as well as as the cultural heritage of the the Roman Empire, uh, a pretty big deal. It's so fascinating. I mean, this question of just how divine Christ is, which you know, I think the the, the answer that we're kind of living in for the most part today is he's a hundred percent divine and a hundred percent human. Um, but this question got so many people in trouble, you know, <laughs> just because it was one of these things that was just part of the the social milieu that if you didn't have the right answer, you might be, you just might be ostracized. You might be on the outs completely. Yeah. And, and there's one more heresy here that I'll talk about in terms of, of Christ. And this is Nestorianism. And this is the belief that Jesus Christ and the Son of God are not exactly the same person, but somehow are mixed up in a single body, like having two identities in a single body. It's an extraordinarily complicated belief. Like I, I'm not doing it justice here, but I'm also not going to spend too much more time on that. But this also was a major heresy, but it's not a Western heresy. So I think probably most of our listeners aren't very familiar with it. But this was important in the Near East and also in Persia, where it was the dominant form of Christianity for uh, several centuries, for quite a long time. But there are even still elements, actually, of this belief in Eastern Christianity today. So you can find elements of this in Christianity as it's practiced today in the Near East and also in India. I mean, not full-on Nestorianism, but the, the legacy of this in that type of thinking. And this is actually a place where McCulloch's 
proclamation, I guess, here about how there have always been Christianities rather than Christianity is actually still with us, you know, today, even not just in terms of the Reformation or the split between uh, Eastern and Western Christianity in the 11th century, but still with us today, even in the legacy of some of these heresies. I mean, one thing that I've been thinking about as you've been kind of running down the the heresies uh, uh, that were what has become heresies uh, when we're thinking about the nature of God and the nature of of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, who you know is the the Christian Messiah and so on, um, is is the way in which these types of questions have formed, as you pointed out, so much of our history, right? Global history, Western history, and so on in particular. Um, But now it's just, it feels almost absurd to be seriously considering the nature of God, not only within the Christian faith itself, it feels like a settled issue. We know who Christ is. He's a hundred percent God, a hundred percent divine uh, man and so on. Um, but that, that, that seems to be a part of what Borges is getting at here too, is that not only were these so formative, uh, this might be a community that you were a part of determined whether you were an outsider or an insider in your own uh, in the, like the nature of citizenship or where you belonged in the world. Um, but now to write something like this, uh, even in as early as 1909, it's just not even rising to the attention of people who are still thinking about these questions. And people who are thinking about these questions are kind of locked away in, in places where most citizens are not prone to travel, you know, down, down the road towards the Ivy towers and so on. So yeah, that kind of contingency of history seems to be a big part of what Borges is up to in, in this story as well, even in looking at this question. Yeah, the idea that questions about whether or not God and Christ are co-eternal and also co-equal, the idea that thinking about that, that answering those questions could have massive impact could have a massive impact on, say, the development of institutions for your brand new state that you're inventing. That seems weird to us, seems super weird. But nonetheless, this is the experience of of late antiquity. There was a time when these questions really, really mattered to everybody and had massive implications beyond uh, what today we would think of as being the ivory tower. These were questions that really shaped and defined people's lives. And and not even just in, in the social way that you're thinking about, Brandon, in terms of thinking about community, even within families. There were people in the West in late antiquity who would have children who were Nicene Christians while they themselves were Aryan Christians or vice versa, might be themselves Aryans and married to a Nicene woman. And, you know, you, you know, if you think Thanksgiving is complicated now in, in America, I mean, imagine, imagine <laughs> Easter, right? What, what Easter was like here. In fact, actually, even in late antiquity, when is Easter was a major, a major question. So you might be in a family where <laughs> half the family celebrates Easter uh, uh, on one date and uh, the other half of the family celebrates Easter, uh, you know, two weeks later. It's it's just so fascinating. I mean, it's 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 hard now in the 21st century, you know, even with the way our education system is set up to recall how foundational debates about Christianity, the right kind of Christianity is in even forming what we think of as the past. I mean, so much of the past we you might encounter in a public school system just isn't going to touch on the role that Christianity played 
in so much of history leading up really until, I guess, I don't know what, the 19th century, even the 20th century, um, and even still a time when we in, in, in expect our political leaders to be nominally Christian, at least, you know, we have, you know, the, the, those famous photos of Trump holding the Bible upside down uh, in the middle of the pandemic and so on um, as a kind of symbolic gesture. You know, Obama had to be a Christian. Bush had to be a Christian. Um, questions about Obama's religious beliefs dominated the news uh, for cycle for, I don't know, the entirety of the eight years he was president. These questions about the religiosity of our leaders is important while the functional practice of, of these religions has kind of died away from our civic life. It's just really fascinating. We're still kind of mixed up in this in a really big way, even though we kind of ignore so much of the, uh, I don't know, reality, the calls, the vocations of these, these belief systems, I don't know what I'm saying here. Maybe that's why this is such a difficult story because we're still we're still kind of in the midst of these sorts of debates civically, but not personally or in terms of a household and things like that. It's very strange. We live in a strange time. We sure do. And uh, I'm going to start pulling us back out towards the story a little bit here, Brandon, but I want to talk about Judas in heresy as well. So we've gone through just a little bit, a very brief, not a very brief and incomplete <laughs> survey of some of the Christological controversies that Bohr has, has sprinkled into the story. But of course, it's largely about Judas. So I'm going to bring just two here. There's a lot, of course, weird views about Judas in the history of Christianity, but I'm going to talk just about two of them here. The first are the Cainites. These were not very important. They don't show up here in Borges at all, but I'm bringing them up because they're actually used by Neil Gaiman in the Sandman story arc, Season of Mists, where, in fact, uh, we actually go to hell and uh, do not see Judas when we are in hell, I will say. But the Cainites were this really bizarre just weird, frankly, Gnostic sect of the second century. They believed a lot of weird things. For example, they believed that the God in the Bible is evil and that the material world that that God created is evil. And then they also believed that Judas was awesome for betraying Jesus because Jesus was an instrument of this evil God. This is not something that is supported by any of the text, right? Any of the, the scripture. So this is kind of an anti-scripture reading. It's really kind of conspiracy theory, early Christianity, or an early an early Christian sect that is essentially a conspiracy theory. And we just don't know that much about them, but it's a lot of fun. And I wanted to bring it up because thinking about the overlap between Borges and uh, Neil Gaiman is, uh, well, it's a big part of what we do at the network, actually. The last one that I'll talk about here before we get back to the story, Brandon, is a text called The Gospel of Barnabas. This you might find in some places like an old version of the Encyclopedia Britannica or something like that. Uh, you might find it described as a, a, an apocryphal ancient text, but we know that it's medieval. It's late medieval at this point. Uh, the first manuscript of it is in the 14th century, and that's probably not much later than the invention of this text. But this is a, a text here. This Gospel of Barnabas uh, claims that Judas was actually the one who was crucified, not Jesus, but that what happened here is that Judas really did betray Jesus. It's just that Jesus then, at that exact moment, ascended to heaven before the authorities could arrest him. So he just bodily ascended to heaven. And then Judas was divinely 
made to resemble Jesus and was arrested and crucified in his place. And, uh, I mean, there's like a Kafka-esque nightmare wrapped up in the middle of this of this text yeah. that also then has this really interesting idea here that Jesus never actually suffered on the cross. He never actually died for our sins, right? And so, obviously, this is a, an incredibly heretical view, but it actually had a pretty wide following in the late Middle Ages. Barnabas is an interesting figure in the New Testament. He's another person who, you know, in your thousandth time through Acts, when you've kind of washed all of the uh, Sunday school hermeneutics out of your system and are reading, encountering the text as text, uh, you, you start to think a lot about Barnabas, who was like Paul's companion, and then they had a falling out, and then Barnabas is just kind of like somebody who you're not supposed to listen to anymore. So like really ripe for Gnosticism. One of these great, um, you know, characters of the New Testament who, I don't know, you just get more curious about and there's nothing more written about, which is when you get these Gnostic texts and so on. So yeah, I'm I'm uh, fascinated. I actually want to read this gospel of, of Barnabas. It's not one that I knew was uh, an extent. Yeah, well, we can maybe throw that. Uh, you know, next time we're 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 voting for a theme, maybe, uh, and you know, instead of having pseudo scholarship on there, we could actually just look at some of these uh, these types of texts. I think there are a lot of them, and uh, uh, you know, we could take some inspiration from uh, from Lewis Gold from uh, from Peace, who uh, may have actually written some of these texts that we're talking about here today. <laughs> that might be a real thing. Well, all right, let's move back into talking about the the story here. And in fact, I'm not sure if the word story is really appropriate for what this text is. This definitely is not a story the way that we normally define it, which is a person overcoming obstacles in order to achieve a goal. This is not the first time we have done something like this on the network, certainly not even the first time we've done it on Elder Sign. And in fact, in the past, Brandon, you have complained a little bit when we get pieces that aren't actually stories. So I just want to kind of ease us back into this by checking in with you. This is something I'm going to do kind of anytime we get something like this, but just to check in with you about whether or not you enjoyed this piece. I just found it so challenging. I mean, the last quote unquote story that we did that was not a story was was Pierre Menard, author of the Quixote. I, I referred to that as an etude, which in musical form is kind of like a technical exercise of composition and then also performance or technique building as a as a as a practitioner of the instrument this feels even less like that than than Pierre Menard did uh, this this almost feels hostile to the reader it it assumes so much about the readership while giving nothing in return you know about the audience by what I mean the assumptions are made when they're gonna know a huge amount about Christology, about uh, theories of Judas, um, but also like just perhaps if you are um, a serious or devout Christian or a pious Christian, you might find the context or the text of the story, the content itself to be kind of rankly offensive, which makes it difficult to even get into what you have to move past your offense to kind of read what Borges is, is doing. Um, and even when you do that, even when you kind of move past all of those knee jerk gut reactions to the text, it's still a really difficult text to read. It's not inviting in any way to the reader. Um, I just found it. I read this multiple times and I just did not find any kind of real clarity that I was looking for 
in this story. <laughs> it's very hard to recap. And it's not to say that I disliked it. It's a story that I think is meant to challenge. Challenge you as a reader, to challenge you as a thinker, to challenge your um, cultural assumptions about the world. And as such, it just is a very difficult text. So I don't really know how to think of it as a story. Even as a kind of etude, I find it very difficult to encounter. I just found it very difficult and I think 20 years ago, I would have found this story fascinating or intriguing or edgy or something on a level that, you know, being in middle age, I just, it just didn't hit me in the same way. If it read like something I'd want to be interested in, but after reading two paragraphs, if I came across it in a book review journal, I would say, yeah, I don't need to read any of these books. That's fine. It's almost like a, a review where the reviewer is saying, you don't need to read these. I'm giving you the best parts. It's like <laughs> Eusebius is doing with Josephus or something like that. I don't know. Oh, well, those are the those are the best scholarly book reviews and is really what those book reviews are for. But I think you, you've hit on something that I, I really like here, Brandon, or, or just share with you, I guess, which is that there definitely was a time in my life when I would have read this story from a kind of edgy perspective would have felt like, oh, finally, someone's asking some really important questions here. But I think the thing is that, yeah, in our middle age, I realized that loads of people have asked these questions and that there are actually good answers to them and that it doesn't have to be an edgy kind of rebellious thing to be thinking about these questions. And just in general, I think you know, we're at an age right now where edginess is a flaw and not a not a feature of, of something. And, uh, you know, that's just uh, where we are in our life cycle. That's not going to be true for, for everyone on the planet and not even true for all of our listeners. But, you know, I do wonder if there is actually a kernel of a story here, or at least a story that we could tease out. Each of us has called this a scholarly review or, or you know, some something something akin to that at any rate. But it actually really is not that this piece is not any genre that actually exists. And there is a character here in this piece. It's Runeberg himself, whom Borges does give us a kind of narrative about, right? That's what this business at the beginning about him actually being a very devout person and really trying to answer these questions from a place of religious devotion, a place of piety, I think might actually matter. And then the piece also ends with his death, right? Which is told to us really in kind of sad uh, terms, I guess. So, you know, is there a kind of story that's maybe, maybe not embedded, but kind of hidden here? I think there is. And I think you're right to say it's about Runeberg and that the reviewer is sympathetic to Runeberg's life, but maybe only has the limits of the review with which to bring about that mode of compassion or sympathy. Runeberg is somebody who identified deeply with the Messiah and kind of through his rejection as a scholar decided that his Messiah must be the one who is full of resentment, as Runeberg is full of resentment. So Runeberg, in a sense, invents his own Christ through Judas because, and, and then tries in turn to rescue Judas from being a villain, um, even though Judas is a character who, you know, we might be reading as kind of full of resentment about Christ being actually divine rather than being the civic hero he wants him to be. And that resentment kind of overtakes him, opens him up to demonic uh, 
influence and and just there's a lot to go on here. It's all touched on actually in this text that Borges has written. And so maybe we can, if we want to say a story is something which draws a kind of moral conclusion about being in one way or another, that the conclu- moral conclusion that we can draw from this is uh, be careful who you pick your Messiah to be. Of course, this is something that Calvinists will outrightly reject and so on, but it's something like that. Be careful who you imitate as your hero- heroes. Um, that is seems so trite and flat compared to what Borges has written here. But on the particular level, Runeberg's decision to see Judas as his Messiah does seem to play a big role in Runeberg's life, in how he lives his life. And so just as imitation of character is a big part of Christianity, is a big part of how we've shaped our our society, choosing as that figure, someone who is full of resentment uh, might not be a good plan, especially if you're looking at the history of the 20th century as well. So there's also this kind of play on, you know, Runeberg dying before World War One, but this kind of thinking about heroes as people full of resentment um, is kind of a, a prediction of who our real heroes are, who we choose to save us in the 20th century, uh, looking at the rise of fascism, Nazism, totalitarianism, and so on. That's what I think is going on here. That feels like an extraordinary stretch. And I would be bored writing this paper if I was forced to. <laughs> but I I, th- I think a little bit, uh, there's a little bit of that sprinkled on here, or I'm just stretching too far. I feel like Stretch Armstrong here. I'm I'm just I'm I'm overreaching. That's how I feel. Well, I think you're 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 turning the tables here on Borges in a sense and trying to see this story, you know, through the lens of Runeberg as an actual character, as a, a protagonist of a of a proper story, rather than simply the the author of some 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 text, the the creator of some ideas that Borges is is interested in here, and you know, I joked earlier about you know how a, a lot of what we do on the the network is think about uh, how Neil Gaiman has reinterpreted Borges. That's also true for Gene Wolfe, right? So that is actually like a pretty big through line of of the network, and I think that this is a character whom either Gene Wolfe or Neil Gaiman could actually take and really tell us a story about with quite a bit of 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 pathos, really, and and you know we. Were we're joking about Lou Gold from from Peace earlier too, but there might even be some overlap, really, between those two characters as well—a kind of uh, sadness, uh, you know, forgotten uh, and just maybe outright ignored uh, genius, and uh, but 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 all of that coming from a place of uh, some kind of devotion or piety or deep love of something as well, but misunderstood and 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 misplaced, right? So I think there's a character there who is living at this interesting time that Borges has, has chosen here. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think this is a story that's that's uh, ready for some fan fiction uh, around it. And well, if Neil Gaiman's taken requests, uh, you know, this is, uh, this is what I would, I would pitch to him. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think so. I mean, this, this character is fascinating. Um, the, the kind of modern man that, um, Borges is envisioning here somebody whose tastes, uh, whose interest in the archive of the past is just 
not part of any kind of popular movement. And so they're going to go largely unnoticed. We live in an extraordinarily populist age, uh, an age of mass media. And this is a big part of the 20th century history, the late 19th century history as well with, you know, the, the newspapers, all the newspapers for every point of view, the rise of the, the way that print media gives way to radio media, the way that, that mass communication kind of forms culture. And this is someone out of step with that. And rather than recognizing, I'm just going to form a little group of people that I can hang out with and talk about this. We're going to do theology on tap. We're going to, whatever I can, we can have crazy opinions. It's just a place where we can just talk about these ideas. I'm going to write books on them. 12 people are going to read them. It's going to cost $800 to buy my book because (laughs) that's what a university text costs. Um, he chooses resentment really. And I think that that, I I really do think that that is kind of Borges looking at 20th century politics and saying, yes, it is hard to be a person who is out of step with the popular movement. Choosing resentment is the wrong path every single time. Um, but at, at the same time, there's this real mundanity to this this guy's life as well. That is, that is sad. It's a little tragic. He writes this magnum opus. Nobody cares about it. And then three years later, he dies of an aneurysm. And it's just kind of, you almost have this Vonnegut-esque, so it goes, shrugging of the shoulders going on here uh, in the story. It's just, I do love how Borges looks at the lives of, of people who are kind of ignored, but are still trying to walk within the stream of history. It's, yeah, but again, the text here is just very complex and difficult, and I'm, I'm not quite sure why that is. Well, before we get out of here, Brandon, I actually want to talk about, well, really not so much discuss, but just point listeners to another story about a heretical Judas religion. It's one that we've actually covered before. It's one that's uh, less difficult to get into is actually a story in the sense of it's about a character overcoming obstacles in order to achieve a goal. And that was The Way of Cross and Dragon by George R. R. Martin. We covered that on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast five years ago, may have even have been six years ago. I mean, it was a long time ago. Our lives were totally different when we covered that. I have not revisited that story. I didn't suggest to you that you do that this week, but I w- but I wanted to call our listeners' attention to it because I think this is something that would be a lot of fun to go talk about on the Discord server, maybe comparing these two stories. If people are interested in that, I'm happy to do the homework. I loved that story. I would uh, eagerly accept a reason to to go read it again and uh, have that conversation with listeners on the Discord server. Yeah, I had forgotten about that story because we've read so much between then and now, but I'm really glad you reminded me of it, and I am going to reread it, and I will... Uh, be ready to give people thumbs up for their commentaries on the Discord server <laughs> yeah. if I don't have any thoughts myself. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've literally done something like 400 episodes since we did that one. So uh, yeah, we just don't remember everything that we have said on the radio and uh, certainly don't remember everything that we've read at this point. But yeah, it would be a fun conversation. So all right, I think on that note, looking forward to that conversation, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. Thanks again for joining us through our, our journey through this Borges tale. We hope you'll join us for all the other things we do on the network, which you can find at claytemplemedia.com. We've got lots of great uh, shows there. If this is the only one you listen to, expand. Listen to the other ones. There's some great, great stuff we do on the Gene Wolf Literary Podcast, on ATAS, uh, and so on. And then please if you haven't already, join us on Patreon. Check out what we have to offer there. You will not be disappointed. 
go to Patreon, go to patreon.com slash Clay Temple Media. You can vote for what we're going to be covering next year. That's a hugely exciting thing for us. You get access to tons of bonus content. You just have to join us first. So we hope you'll do that. Uh, we think you'll we think you'll love it. And we want to thank John R. Foltz again for sponsoring this episode. And we hope you'll check out his new short story collection, Darker Than Weird. You can use the links in our show notes or you can look for it wherever you get your books. Next time, we're going to be back here with Hellfire on the High Frontier by David Farland. Uh, You can tell, I think, from the title that this is going to be a foray into the Weird West, and I am super excited about that. But until then, we greet you and say farewell. Farewell.